When I turned 50 years old, I reflected on 49 years of living. And I wrote an essay, you can read it on the web, called On Turning 50. I started by saying, how did I ever get here this fast? No one ever told me. Now, the truth is, my dad did tell me. I was 17. He said, Bobby, that's what my family calls me. Don't start calling me that. He said, Bobby, you're 17. You're going to snap your fingers, and you're going to be 40. And guess what? He was wrong. I snapped my fingers, and I was 50. And everybody told me it was going to be fast. The Bible tells you it's going to be fast. Job said his days were quicker than a runner. And here I was, 50. Now, I wasn't overwhelmed by 50. I took it in stride. I actually wrote that, truth is, I'm comfortable with this season of my life. Wisdom and experience are my new friends. I just wish I knew them earlier. Every day now has a new urgency, and I'm excited about what lies ahead and accomplishing those things that God has for me. I looked ahead at my 50s. I thought it was going to be my greatest decade. I really did. We had just landed on this property, which was a miracle from God, and we had a 2020 vision. God had given me personal things in my life that I thought were ahead of me. Uh, my kids were all either graduating college or heading to college. They were doing well. And I just thought all the arrows were up and to the right. Now, as enthusiastic as I was about life, I started looking around at my peers, people in this church, in my age bracket, colleagues, and I wasn't seeing the same thing. I couldn't put a finger on it, but at a time in their life where they finally had money and resources and energy, they had raised kids and built businesses, the only thing I can think is this people group is stuck. Now, they weren't in sin, and they weren't trying, they weren't not trying. It was almost like they had their foot on the gas, but the wheels were spinning and turning up a lot of mud. They were going in circles. I was very concerned about this group and how to pastor them. Now, as time went by, I started to look at another group of people. All my kids are millennials, and I hang out with their friends, and I started to look at millennials. And guess what? They look stuck. And I started to observe what they were going through and how our culture had changed. Uh, because people are marrying later, most of them had been raised out of their family and hadn't started new families, so they were kind of in that in-between period. Many of them hadn't found spouses yet. They were the first generation really saddled, and I mean really saddled, in student debt. Many of them haven't, hadn't acquired the jobs they thought would bring them satisfaction, and a lot of them were becoming disenfranchised with the greater evangelical church, and they were basically stuck. Then I start getting around 30-somethings. And guess what? They seem to be stuck. Now, they had a lot to live for. They were raising families. They were working long hours in their career. They were acquiring things. But many of them were um, sharing with me that they really didn't have time for a spiritual life. Like, there was so much care and physical activity, they didn't know where God fit into the whole mix. And then something profound happened. I got stuck. Two years into my 50s, I hit a wall. I burned out. Many of you were around for that era. I was out of ministry for four months. God was doing a lot of recalibration in my spirit and my soul. And I did something at the age of 52 I had never done. I went to a Christian counselor. Now, I'm a counselor. And uh, I have friends that are counselors. And we talked, but we never talked about my emotional world. I had never been the patient before. When I went to my Christian counselor, he showed me an emotional wheel. We'll put it on the screen for you. It's, it's a little hard to read. And he told me, don't look at the outward spokes. I just want you to look at the inward spokes. There are six of them. And tell me right away what resonates with what you're feeling emotionally. I looked at that wheel, and I knew it in three seconds 
I was sad. Now, if you asked me the day before, are you sad? I would have never said I was sad. I would never dreamed I was sad until I looked at the emotional wheel. It resonated with me. I was sad. When I went out and looked at the spokes, it was exactly descriptive of my life. I was bored, lonely, guilty, felt inadequate and inferior. I might challenge you to look at that wheel and see where you are at this time. Now, when I went to see the counselor, two things happened to me. Number one, my emotional world opened up. Now, for somebody my age, raised in my generation, you never talked about your emotions. I couldn't go to my parents and tell them what I was feeling in my inward world. They couldn't even make it in their lives, let alone help me. They were struggling. And then I became a Christian, and I was told, you don't trust your emotions. You have to trust God and the scriptures and so forth and so on. So this was a whole new world to me, and it took me a while, but here's what I figured out. Emotions are a gift from God. They are a wonderful guide. They are a terrible taskmaster. I want to say that one more time. Emotions are a gift from God. They are a wonderful guide. They are a terrible taskmaster. Here's what I mean by that. The emotion of fear comes from God. Like when you see high voltage lines and it says don't touch, uh, that's, you know, the fear of touching that line is good, right? Fear keeps me from driving 100 miles an hour, jumping off cliffs, you know, putting money in penny stocks. Fear is a good thing, right? It's a terrible taskmaster. Fear and doubt will keep you from everything and anything God has for you in your future in life. Fear and doubt will keep you from every dream and everything God has ever put on your heart in life. So emotions kind of tell us what's going on in our inner world. So I took some time and I prayed and I realized why I was sad. I realized as I began to journal, seven things in my life had ended at one time. Seven things. Friendships, leaders, uh, whatever it is, seven things had come to an end in my life simultaneously and I began to understand I was going through the grieving process though no one in my life had died. And the result of that is, I was sad. About six months later, I was on our sizzling summer lawn. My son was interviewing the guest speaker in the table, and I like to stay out of his world when he's doing something. So I stayed out on the lawn. There were hundreds of people there. It was a beautiful night. This woman comes up to me and says, Pastor Bob, I had a dream about you. Can I share that dream? And I said, sure. She said, you know, it's funny. I had the dream a while ago. I've been in this church five years and you and I have never talked. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know? She was like, don't worry about it. It's okay. She said, but I told God I would never tell you the dream unless you said hello. And tonight you said hello to me. <laughs> Let me tell you the dream. And she began to describe this dream. I was standing and there was a beautiful tree behind me. And then the leaves turned like they would in the fall. And then winter came. And then somebody came out with lob shears and was hacking all the branches off this tree until there was nothing and then a new tree was growing up behind it. Now, I don't know what kind of look I was giving her, but in the middle, she stopped and she said, this is ridiculous, right? She said, uh, it must not be what's going on in your life. I said, if I called everybody in my inner circle here right now, they would swear you had inside knowledge. That's how accurate it is. And I went through this season, and God used things like this. He used scripture and talks that I heard, and I began to realize something. I began to realize in the long journey of following Jesus that we're all going to get stuck at times. 
We really are. And here's the important thing. We can't avoid it. We can't make end runs around it. It's something God has designed. It's something when we go through and get to the other side, we are the richer and better for it. I didn't enjoy my season, but I am so thankful that I went through it. Um, there's a scripture I want to read to you. It is foundational to all that we know and believe. It's in John chapter 10 when Jesus says he's the good shepherd. And he says, I say to you again, most assuredly, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And get this, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, and that more abundantly. As Christians, we were meant to live the abundant life. Not that God would fill our bank accounts and we would never get sick or face trials, but that as we go through the valley of the shadow of death, there is a God who is linked with us. He's elbow deep in our problems, and we are inseparable for him. That is the abundant life. We know where we came from. We know where we're going. He's given us the peace that passes understanding. So you might ask the question, then, why is it we get stuck? Real quick, I'll give you five reasons. One of the reasons we get stuck, you may be there this morning, is the seasons of life. Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to heal, a time to make war. You know, you live long enough, you go through the ebbs and flow of seasons. And change is difficult, right? You know, making the jump from adolescence to adulthood, difficult. Uh, going in your 20s to your 30s where you're trying to figure out career and family and all that is a difficult adjustment. Midlife's difficult. Old age is difficult. There's all these transitions that take place, and you can get stuck in them, right? We all do. The other thing that can get us stuck is trials. Uh, think about how many of God's people got stuck in trials. Joseph had a profound vision where the sun, the moon, and the stars all bowed down to him. God was going to do great things in his life. And yet, he was sold into slavery and found himself in prison, right? He was stuck. Uh, Daniel, stuck. He's in the lion's den. Peter got stuck. You know what Peter said about his trials? Don't count it strange when the fiery trial comes upon you as though it were a strange thing. He used the word strange twice and the word trial once because every time we go through a trial, we think it's strange, right? But James tells us what we see as trials on our end are actually tests. That God is putting us through these things so there's something we can prove out about our relationship to him. We're going to go through trials. The third thing that can lead to stuckness is an extended time of suffering or loss. We're going to lose the people we love. Some people have debilitating health issues or whatever. Sometimes those seasons can be really long and we can get stuck. Here's one nobody thinks about, the fourth one. Theologians call it the hiddenness of God. This is where God kind of pulls back a little that we might seek him. When David said, my, you know, my soul panteth after the Lord, uh, what he was talking about is down in the Negev in Israel, they have wadis. These are like in the middle of the desert. These are, these are kind of like pools that have no water, but when the latter and the early rains come, they fill them up, and the deer have to literally pant to find these places to be refreshed. Sometimes God pulls back because he's a God that wants to be sought, and we can get stuck there and think God forgot about us. Fifth way we get stuck is a word that we don't use in our culture anymore, sin. Sin will get you stuck. Winnie the Pooh ate too much. 
wasn't the fact he didn't have a front door. He ate too much, like a lot of us did over the holidays, right? God loves us. You know, we're going to study in Romans that, you know, the law of sin and death is passed, and we have the spirit of liberty and all that, but guess what? God has still given us the commandments. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said there's two ways to live. You build your house on sand or your house on the rock, and a series of bad choices will get you stuck. Now, here's what's important. The important thing for all Christ followers is the desire to get unstuck. See, that's what I'm concerned about. As long as the desire's there to get unstuck, we'll do well. Gordon McDonald wrote a whole book about this called The Resilient Life. He was at our men's retreat several years ago. He said, Christ followers who were going the distance, and he was writing about the list of Hebrews, the great men and women of faith, said they're committed to four spiritual things. One is to go the distance. They're committed to finishing strong. They live by the big picture of life. They travel in the company of a few, and they run confidently. They run with confidence. They're looking at Jesus. So we all get, on, we all get stuck. I'm going to tell you at the end of this how we get unstuck. But the thing I really want to drive home today is the pitfalls that we fall into when we get stuck. Uh, this is 35 years of learning. Took me a while to crack this code. But here's how it works, basically. As I analyze life, there's the life that Jesus promised right? The abundant life, the overflowing life, your bellies with living water and peace and joy. There is the life that Jesus promised. And then there is the life that is, the life that I live, where I'm short with my wife who I love. I yell at my kids too much. I manipulate things to get my way. I'm so aware of my depravity that I feel like, Paul, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do, I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. There is this downward pull spiritually. There is this traitor within. And so when I look at what Jesus promised in the life that is, what I become is a manager of the gap. My whole life is spent sometimes trying to bridge the gap from what is to what Jesus promised life should be. I become an image manager. I become someone who strives and strains to get to the place as though it were all on me to where God would have me to be. I use deception and manipulation to get what I want. My spiritual life goes up and down. And again, I feel like the Apostle Paul, and so do many of you. We're all stuck somewhere. If you're not totally stuck, you could be stuck in a subcategory, which we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about finances and marriage and relationships and career and church and even our walk with God. But what I want to help you today with is avoiding the pitfalls, and I'll walk you through several. Uh, the one that's really damaging is we're going to try harder, right? Sounds noble, right? I'm going to read more, pray more, go to more conferences, I'll read a great book, uh, just a little more spiritual elbow grease. I get up at five in the morning now, I'll get up at four in the morning, right? Just try harder. Now, there's a noble side to that, and there's a shadow side to that. Obviously, all those things are good. Obviously, praying and fasting, I've been telling you guys about thirst, right? We sold over 90 copies of Scott Harrison's book. I've shared with you, Charity Water, this book is the most inspirational book I've read in five years, and I'm recommending it to everyone. There's nothing wrong with reading great books for inspiration. The problem is, 
And here's where I crack the code. The problem is, are we extending effort or action? Let me give you a definition. Effort is a determined attempt to work, strain, strive, or force an issue or circumstance. And I pick those adjectives carefully. Striving, straining. Action is the process of doing something typically to be deliberate in achieving an aim or a goal. It's an undertaking that inspires activity. I'll give you two examples, one biblical, uh, one that I experienced. For the last couple years in the fall, I've taken uh, a team of our leadership guys and staff away to whitewater rafting in West Virginia. We've had a fabulous time. Uh, the first time we've gone down, you get down there, you have these rustic cabins, and you're all excited. You wake up, and it's the day after Labor Day, and they open the dam to the Gauley River. They flood the upper and lower Gauley, a new river, and you have class five rapids, and people come from all over the country to raft down in West Virginia. So we're all excited. We get down there, and they put you on a yellow school bus, and they drive you five miles up the river where they're going to launch you. Now, the whole time you're on the bus, they're telling you all the safety tips and what you need to do. And if you don't do these things that they prescribe, basically they tell you you're going to die, okay? Now, when you get there, you get out of the bus and you get on the raft, and there's about 12 rapids you're going to hit. And you have a guide, and about five minutes before you hit the rapid, he tells you what you need to do, and if you don't do it, you're going to die. They've actually named these rapids after guys that have died. To which I'm wondering, how in the world is this a team building trip? We might not even have a team when this is done. <laughs> Here's what I learned about whitewater rafting. You have about 20 seconds of action, and then it's over. You're on the river for about four hours, but you have about 12 rapids with 20 seconds of action. So you're approaching the rapid, the guy gives the instructions, and you paddle, you paddle, you paddle, and once you make it through, it's like, wow. And you look back and you think, that was about 20 seconds. The next 10 minutes, you're goofing off, swimming, drinking water, joking around, and then 20 more minutes of action, right? Now, could you imagine when that rafting trip is over, if the guide said, all right, guys, now turn it around. Instead of taking the bus, we're going to go all the way up the rapids. Imagine what that would be like. Be a lot of effort, wouldn't it? Lot of, in fact, it would be total effort. And you know what the outcome would be? Anxiety, fear, all kinds of bad emotions would come out. Why? Because now, instead of being in the flow, we're striving upstream. No longer is it a relaxing, enjoyable, peaceful journey. And, but now it is this striving and this kind of raw desire to get somewhere. And I think we would get stuck. I really do. I kind of apply this to what I learned about church. Uh, my pastor, Chuck Smith, told us you can either strive in ministry or you can cruise in ministry. Now, he wasn't saying ministry's not hard work. There's a lot of hard work in it. But you can strive to get things done or you can let the Holy Spirit kind of guide your actions. I think life's a lot like whitewater rafting. 20 seconds of exhilarating action as we're in the flow of God's spirit or we can turn it around and we can put constant effort in and spin our wheels. A lot of people do this. Let me give you a biblical example. 
God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. In fact, you're going to have so many offspring, it's going to be like the stars in heaven and the sand on the shore. It's innumerable. And he said, not only that, the heir, how you're going to start all this, will come from your own body. Now, Sarah's 80. She's in a tent. She overhears this and starts belly laughing. In fact, when they finally have Isaac, his name in Hebrew means laughter. So God gives them this daunting task, this impossible task. And Sarah does what 90% of what all of us in this room have done, will do, and seem to always do. She takes matters in her own hands. We are wonderful project managers, aren't we? You know, we really, we're really going to get in there and help God do his bidding. She comes up with this wonderful plan. Um, I'm going to find one of Abraham's concubines. He'll have sex with her. We'll have the heir, and we'll be off and running. Problem is, Hagar, this woman she chooses, flees into the wilderness. She's full of shame and guilt. And God looks down and says, look, I will bless this nation also. And her son is called Ishmael, which means God sees. And God said, this will be a great nation. And the man who's in your womb will be a wild donkey of a man, and he will always be against his brother. And that was the seeds of the Arab nation. And there has been strife among those nations and against Israel. And one bad choice by one woman who couldn't trust God has left thousands of years of a wake. See what happens when we get in? See what happens when we mess things up? When we've got to help God along? All Sarah had to do was trust. But she had to fill this gap. She had to find her way back to all that God had. There's a verse that we read, and we think it's evangelistic, where Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. We think that's for the unbelievers, that they're tired of living for the world, they're going to come to Christ. That's not the context. The context was Jesus talking to religious people who had been burdened by 480 rules just to keep a day off. And all these man-made traditions, what Jesus said, makes the word of God to no effect. And he said, come to me, if you're weary of religion and weary of tradition, I will give you rest. And that was a gift that we all opened at one time. But because we're gap managers, we kind of get in there and we help God along. A little bit of elbow grease. Some of you were stuck in tradition and legalism and doctrines and Calvary became a freeing place. Some of you may be stuck in something like that now. As I said, the shadow side, prayer and reading and all those things are wonderful. I love what John Piper coined. He coined Christian hedonism, that all these spiritual disciplines should be a duty, not a duty, but a delight, that we should enjoy our relationship with God. Another way people get unstuck, it's kind of a pitfall, is they rededicate their lives to God kind of over and over. And by the way, January is a great time to rededicate yourself to God, right? I call this the youth group syndrome. We see this with our kids, right? They go to school in the fall, they love God, but it's not cool, so they drift away. They come back in the summer, they go to our camps, they come the sizzling summer, they're all fired up from God. They go back to school, they rededicate. It seems like their whole high school experience is rededicating to God. Uh, when I was a new Christian, I was watching an evangelist on television. And he had an altar call. And thousands of people were coming down at this altar call. I'm like, this is amazing. And then I looked down, and most of these people had Bibles in their hands or bags where they had bought, like, books and CDs and everything. And I'm thinking, well, what's going on here? And then I realized these people had no assurance 
They were constantly just rededicating their life to God because they felt stuck. Another thing people do at this time is they switch spiritual venues. They'll look at their life and think they're stuck and they'll think, we need to join another church, a new denomination, find another movement, the latest teaching or fad. Again, there's a good part to this and a shadow side. We've had people come here after 25 years in another church and just take off like a rocket, a new beginning. Other people have left here and have done the same somewhere else. God moves people around. I learned early in ministry, I'm preaching to a parade. People will come and go. But here's what happens. This is a brush fire. I'll go somewhere else and you'll be happy, but if it's not God, it's a brush fire and you'll be right back to where you were. Mainly because wherever you go, you bring yourself. Bring yourself, okay? The final thing is people give up. Give up on God and the church and people and all the promises that Jesus has. And it's really sad and it concerns me because I really, again, think there is this life Jesus promised. I really think there's an abundance in all that Jesus came to bring and do. And I want to give you three scriptures. You know them all. But again, I'm the CRO, the chief reminding officer. So Jeremiah says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, it leaves, its leaves are always green, it has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. Same adjective Paul used in Philippians 1.6. He says, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it till the end. And then what we're going to look at on Wednesdays in Romans 8, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who were called to his purpose. See the words there? Trust, confidence. You know, some of you manage people, and the question always is, how do I learn to trust them, right? Trust is given and earned, but how do you learn to trust someone? you got to trust them, right? That's how, that's how you find out if they're trustworthy. Here's strange about God. He's God and we're not. And yet God said, you can put me to the test. Remember in Malachi, when it comes to giving, God says, bring the tithe into the storehouse, the offering, and prove me now in this. God says, see if I can be trusted. If I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing, then you won't be able to contain it. Sometimes I sit around when I'm with my family and I look around and I'm just overwhelmed. Because Monica and I were two young kids in a basement apartment in media, broke, with only a dream in our heart. Fifteen years later, across the street from that apartment, I'm signing a $3 million loan for this building. My kids all are through college. I look back at all that God has done, and he's been worthy of trust the whole way. And then I wonder, why do I have so much trouble trusting him? Why do I have so much trouble? Why do I go inward? Why do I wonder? Why do all these things happen? There is this confidence that we can have in God. And here's what's cool. Whenever Jesus got around people, they got unstuck. All kinds of people, right? The adulterous woman who's full of shame and guilt gets unstuck. The woman who had 
kind of given herself to sexuality. She thought that's what was going to bring her success. And Jesus gets her unstuck and a greedy tax collector and 12 disciples who were filled with fear and, and an egocentric Pharisee named Saul becomes a leader in the early church. And, and anybody that got around Jesus just got unstuck. And I think we've made it so complicated that if we just get around him and if we just get in the flow, there'll be 20 seconds of action, but we'll be going downstream and it'll be his wind in our sails at our back. Over the break, I read the whole Gospel of John and I was overwhelmed how much Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit. I mean, he gave them practical tips, but basically he just said, look, the Holy Spirit's going to drive this activity. It's going to be your helper. It's going to be your guide. And, and I just began to realize that from Genesis to Revelation, there is this flow. It starts in Eden where there's these five rivers. Uh, the psalmist picked up on this, I'm pretty sure, in Psalm 46.4, where he said there is a stream or a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Jesus said these rivers would be inside of you. When we get to the end of Revelation, an angel's going to show John a river of the water of life, clear, clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God. The life source is this river of God's spirit that is flowing. And if we just get in the flow... Not only will we get unstuck, we will thrive. Again, not full bank accounts and the lack of trials. It just means God's with us. You know, when I went through my situation, it was very interesting. I couldn't read for a couple weeks. I would put my Bible on the floor. i just read the Psalms. And the penny dropped one day when I was reading Psalm 23, where I was reading about the shadow of death. And God revealed to me, you're not going to die. This is just the shadow of death. And then it said, he made me lie down by still waters. See, when you look at the emotional wheel, I was the powerful guy for most of my life. In fact, I was the last guy who would ever get stuck. Because if I got stuck, I'd work my way out of it. I'd work harder. I'd bust through there. I'd dynamite that hole. I'd get through somehow, some way. And you know what God ministered to me? I made you lie down. Because you wouldn't lie down on your own. Because there's a couple lessons you've got to learn, or you're never going to make it. And it's only the shadow of death. And God began to rebuild me. See, here's the problem. I can't give you anything practical today. I'll give you a lot of practical next week about career and vocation. And when we get to finances and some of those things, I can't give you anything practical. It took me two years to work all this out. And I can't write you a prescription, and nobody can do it for you. There is a God who longs to be sought, who wants to bring fruit in your life, and sometimes Jesus said he has to prune. He's got to whittle it down to rebuild. He's got to take the engine apart until he can rebuild it. A couple years ago, at Christmas, somebody gave me a book called 20,000 Days and Counting. The author Robert D. Smith stumbled upon a New, York, uh, New Year's Day countdown clock where you put in the date and you find out how many days there were until the new year. So he did something ingenious. He put his birthday in and found out that he had been alive for 20,000 days. Wrecked him. Really did. Put an urgency in his life. He thought, oh my gosh, 20,000 days. I've been sucking air for 20,000 days. And then he had this thought, what have I done with 20,000 days? Just acquiring and living and and he vowed the rest of his days would have an urgency. 
That year when I read that book, I was 50. I set these goals. Stay curious. In other words, at 50 years old, you can get set in your ways, right? You can think this is the way it is. I wanted to stay curious. I wanted to look at just anything God would have for me. I wanted to read widely. I wanted to read outside my interest areas. I wanted to make health a priority. I wanted to make wise financial planning decisions, pray earnestly, spend quality time with friends and family. And I had a lot of sub-goals there. Someone sent me a link to Bill Gates. He wrote a whole article about how every year between Christmas and New Year's, he reflects on the year and then sets his goals. I don't know if Robert D. Smith or Bill Gates are Christians, but I love their intentionality. How much more intentional should we be? Again, not striving, right? But a man does plan his way. God orders his steps. What a great time, 2019, to reflect on all that God has done. And then let God reveal. This isn't like a resolution thing. Let God reveal a plan and steps. Let those emotions rise up. See where you are and let them be your guide to the things God would have you walk in. Again, I was the guy who couldn't get stuck. And God made me sit down. And he's made me a better person. He's made me a better pastor, a better friend. He's kind of rebuilt me on the inside. I'm still aware of my depravity. I still have shortcomings. But the beautiful thing is I'm more aware that God is doing something every day if I'll just open my eyes and get in the flow and stop striving and stop pushing the elephant up the stairs and trying to get my way. I'm learning more about forgiveness, more about faith, more about people. The journey is long. The journey's beautiful. The great thing is the master of the feast has kept the best for last. And that translation is the best for now. And I say this all the time. These are the good old days. Stop looking back. These are the only days we have. These can be our best days. As a church, as a people, as a community, we have no idea what God has for us. We have no idea what a day would bring. But I know this. We weren't meant to be stuck only for a season. Peter went back fishing, but then they changed the world. Daniel got stuck in a lion's den. He changed the world. Stuck for a season is okay. Not stuck for a lifetime. So we're going to spend the next six weeks, we're going to pack a lot of this stuff, a lot of junk's going to come out, we're going to deal with it, and we're going to move on to the great things God has for us. You all agree with that? Okay.